dualistic thought and binary thinking is is great for building bridges, for for building hospitals, you know, for all kinds of things. But when it comes to the world of mysticism, uh, we need to get into the non-dual. Today we're talking with Amos Smith. Amos has earned bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees, all in religious studies. He's a long-term centering prayer practitioner, workshop leader, writer, and founder of Recovering Christianity's Mystic Roots. His first book, Healing the Divide, Recovering Christianity's Mystic Roots, is part of the curriculum for the Living School at the Center for Action and Contemplation. Amos, welcome to Methods. All right, Amos, I thought it might be nice for you to start telling our listeners uh, a little bit of your story and how you came to the path of Christian mysticism. Well, I, I started out as a mountain climber, and I, I did um, a lot of backpacking and mountain climbing, especially in the Shenandoah Mountains in Virginia when I was in high school, and then uh, later on in, in California uh, throughout the King Range and Yosemite, did a lot of uh, uh, hiking and climbing around there, and also in the Cascade Mountains in Washington. Anyway, uh, when I would get up on high mountain vistas, I just had this profound feeling that I was part of something much larger than myself, and it was unmistakable. It was something that was just uh, got into my bones, and um, and and it just uh, you know I felt that I was um, my DNA, my reptilian brain, um, that I was tied in. You know that I was uh, I was plugged in. That, that there was um, something much larger than myself, which was mysterious, that um, that showed me this hidden unity. And so that then got me into, um, uh, later on, into centering prayer. And uh, I, I think really the most uh, distinctive uh, things about my history was the mountain climbing. And then um, I was a wrestler. And why why wrestling is important? I was I was like captain of my wrestling team, and I I was one of those guys that got up at you know seven in the morning and you know ran and swam laps and stuff like that. And I, I was just I've always been disciplined and athletic. Anyway, the reason why that's important was because in 1999 I first met Thomas Keating, a Benedictine monk uh, who's well known in Christian tradition for popularizing centering prayer. Anyway, uh, he happened to be at this uh, 10-day retreat that I attended at his um, monastery. It's a Benedict's monastery in Snowmass, Colorado, and um, and Keating told me if I practiced um, at least 40 minutes a day of centering prayer, and if I um, did at least uh, one six to ten day retreat every year, that I would make progress. And so I, I really took those words in a different way than a lot of people would, because at the time, uh, you know, the way I, I saw those words, with, those are my marching orders, you know, and and so I applied that athleticism, I applied um, that discipline that I had as an athlete uh, to centering prayer. And so I, you know, there was rarely a day that I missed the 40 minutes of centering prayer, and and um, there was rarely a year when I didn't do an extended retreat. And as a result of that, I've done literally, you know, thousands of hours of centering prayer, and it really has put me into a whole different space, a whole different way of being in the world. I used to carry a lot of tension in different parts of my body. Most of that tension is gone now. Um, even, even the way my mind works, you know, um, I'm just, uh, I, it's hard to explain, but, um, but I feel like I've, I've gone into a deeper place in my mind where even in trauma, even when there's been really challenging things, cause I've had some really hellacious curveballs thrown at me in my life that somehow I've been able to keep this inner calm. I mean, it seems like, you know, 
there's just a shitstorm, you know, going on around me. But somehow, I I, I just uh, am able to maintain some kind of calm. And uh, you know, and I don't. One of the things I hate is that sometimes people say, "Oh, you're special," whatever. That's bullshit. I'm not special. <laughs> it's just it's just that I've applied, you know, this discipline. And just and one of the things I really don't like about meditation, centering prayer, is a lot of people. They just don't get it. It's like any other art form, like playing the violin. If you want to be good at it, you're going to have to put the time in. You're going to have to practice every day. It's no different from being a marathon runner or, or being a guitar player. I mean, if you're going to do it well, you've got to put the time in. But a lot of people who are into meditation, this is one of the sadnesses, I think, in my life, one of the things I've been working on, is that you know people just kind of are willy-nilly about their prayer practice, and then they kind of you know look at you kind of wide-eyed, like you know why aren't why isn't anything happening for me? Why isn't my spiritual life going anywhere? Well, it's because you're not putting the time in. So um, so anyway, that's that's kind of uh, you know my background in a nutshell. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, I think the stones that inform my path most. Yeah, there's a lot there. I, I will say I'm very jealous that um, you've met Thomas Keating because uh, he's he's kind of a hero of mine. That's really awesome that you got to meet him. Part of what you said about first kind of touching that experiential dimension of your faith through nature, through the mountains, I can I can definitely resonate with that because I, I also am, you know, I'm not a mountain climber by any means, but I do enjoy uh, getting out into nature and to um, you know, strenuous activity, but climbing up uh, mountains and being in, you know, the splendor of creation and all. So, but you said that you kind of apply your athleticism to your spiritual practice. And like, what would you say to people that might not have that inner drive or, or athleticism or may not have that experience to apply to it? And Maybe they'll think that spiritual practice and setting 40 minutes each day is, is kind of daunting. What would you say to someone like that? Well, you know, to me, it just seems like, I don't know, it just seems fairly obvious. I mean, my son is, is into chess. He does chess tournaments. He's 10 years old. And he's also into uh, basketball right now. And, uh, you know, he, he practices twice a week. It's usually about two hours of practice. Um, he has games, uh, you know, basketball games, uh, maybe once every couple weeks. And and then with the chess, you know, he's got a, a chess tournament uh, every uh, maybe couple months. Um, and then he's got this chess club that he goes to once a week. So, you know, a lot of people are motivated by others who have the same passions that they do. So I encourage people to just find a centering prayer group in your uh, area. Um, that can be hard if you're in a rural area, but most cities have uh, centering prayer groups have been going on for years. They usually meet in churches, and they meet once a week, um, and then th that's just a way for you know to connect with other people. And then sometimes in those groups, people will have like little one-on-one, uh, -on -one, uh, you know, just a, a a spiritual friend that they'll sit with one more time during the week, and that can be a real uh, you know not only accountability piece, but but a real inspiration that, you know, I'm not alone in this, that, that I've got, got people who are serious about this too. And then, you know, retreats, uh, you know, just doing a retreat. That, I think that's really the thing that that fueled my passion for this. I, I wasn't that into centering prayer for a couple years. It was on and off. I wasn't really getting much from it. I was like, what the hell, you know, where is this going? Then I did a retreat 
And all of a sudden I got it, you know, because in, in a retreat center setting, I mean, you're, you're doing centering prayer maybe three or four hours a day. You're, you're in silence. You're doing it for six or ten days. By, by day six or seven or eight, you're deep into it. And you think to yourself, wow, how did I even get here? I didn't even know this you know, dimension of the mind and, and the spirit was even possible because you've, you've dipped yourself into a contemplative uh, state of being. And it's, it's not, you know, special or weird or whatever. It's accessible to anyone. Something that I've run into in my experience, because I've done some some retreats and some getaways, and um, it always happens to be that I'm usually the youngest person there. I'm 28, and so typically the people I encounter are usually anywhere from 50s and up, and they're always so astonished to to see me there, and they're like, "Are you know, are you lost? Or you, <laughs> you know, you're at like a centering prayer retreat, right?" And um, so. It is it is a little discouraging for me because I do see the richness in in the tradition and the practice, and I do wish that um, more people my age were able to access uh, contemplative spirituality. But there seems to be kind of like a barrier there, and kind of like an age gap. And so I wonder what you have to say about like why is that gap there? And um, I know that there's the idea of like the second half of life. You don't come to these things until you're in the second half of life. But I do know a bunch of people who are in um, different forms of spirituality, not, not, not necessarily Christian contemplation, but more um, kind of like an open-ended uh, spirituality where they draw from influences like um, you know, Easter practices or Buddhism or... Um, or even the occult, and so they're they're open and they're um, they're wanting that experiential dimension, but they don't seem to be able to find it in the Christian tradition. And I know that it's there. So, what would you say uh, to those people? So, so Jory, I, I hear two things there. The the first thing is why are there are there not more young people at these centering prayer gatherings, contemplative, uh, you know. Uh, conferences and so on, and uh, yeah, I, I would agree with you that there's a lack of, of young people, um, and you know it makes sense to me that you know young people they're they're t- trying to take off in their career, they're they're hitting the ground running, um, and you know if anything they're pounding coffee, they're not you know finding 20 minutes to be silent somewhere, um, but. But, you know, it really what, one thing that really inspired me is I had the occasion a few years ago to be around a whole bunch of teens. It was at this uh, regional uh, conference of, of the United Church of Christ. And, um, and there were just all these teens there. And I was talking about centering prayer, and they, they really seemed to get it. And, uh, and what they said to me is, you know, it, it's just crazy with, you know, we're just on the phone all the time and all the social media, and it's just, it's pinging constantly. And it, it's just like a deluge, you know, and, and I really see the value of this is what this one like 16 year old girl said to me, I really see the value of this just to take a break. And I said, yeah, you know, another thing you might consider is just going for, you know, a few hours without your phone. And she looked at me like, you know, I, I was, <laughs> I, I, I was just off, you know, just, just, that was way out of bounds, you know, but, but I really think that that's, that's the way forward, you know, especially in, in the way our technological world is moving is that we need to counteract the, the incessant, um, addiction to the phone with, with silence mm-hmm. and, and people who, you know, who really see that, how, how far off we are off the mark of balance, 
um, really see the value of centering prayer. So I think part of it too is we just need we need teachers who are more effective and who, and who are, um, you know, I, I might say dynamic, you know, who are good speakers, who connect with people, and, and just to share the, the real value of it. And if you've been transformed yourself, as I have, you know, it's, it's just, I don't know, I, I, I do have this passion, this almost electricity about it. And, um, but, uh, but I, I really see it as the way forward uh, in, our, in our world with all the, you know, just, just all the, the, the crazy amount of a bombardment of social media and, and, and technology. Yeah. Another thing that I've noticed too, and, and you've, you've probably noticed this as well, is that largely in the, the contemplative circles that I frequent, it's also very white. And I asked this question to Carl McCullman as well. And, you know, he had some good stuff to say about the, you know, the um, theologians of, of color that are um, being lifted up right now in the contemplative community. Um, but there's largely kind of like an absence, at least in the, the laity. Um, and that's met, from my perspective, uh, partly by kind of this renewed evangelism to try and reach people of color with this contemplative Christianity. But I think there's also inherent uh, contemplative tradition within the African-American church as well. And it just looks different than, say, the contemplative spirituality of Thomas Keating. And so, how do we bridge that gap and respect uh, the tradition that other people are coming with while also furthering our own? Well, um this is a great point, Jory, and I think another, you know, if we're going to look at the absence of people of color in contemplative gatherings, we also have to look at another obvious absence that I've noticed, and that is the absence of working class. Um, and, you know, some people have, have said to me, Amos, you know, I, I, I kind of get some of the stuff you're talking about, but it, it really seems like, you know, bourgeois, it seems elitist, you know, it's people who have this free time, they can do these retreats. And I tell them, no, no, stop it right there. It, that's not that's not right. Because my close colleague, Rich Lewis, who, um, you know, has written a book, it, it just landed with uh, a Crossroads um Crossroads Press, and it's going to come out uh, this next spring. But uh, and his the title of his book is Centering Prayer and Mindfulness. But what he talks about throughout the book is that you know he's he's a working dad. He's got three kids. Um, you know he works in a small cubicle in a large company, and um, you know puts. But he finds it's so life-giving for him, and that he gets up earlier than he used to just so he can get it in. And then he'll leave his cubicle during lunchtime, and he'll sit in his car so he can do, get a, centering, a second centering prayer sit because he finds it so revitalizing. And one of the things he often talks about is relaxed efficiency. Now, that's not something that we often hear in the Centering Prayer community, but I think it's important for young people to know that when you really develop this art form, that not only do you become, you know, do tensions start to work out of your body and you become more relaxed on a number of levels, but you also have uh, what's called relaxed efficiency, where you can get through the inbox and, and with less stress and with less coffee because you're just in a place which, um, you know, is less governed by, uh, by tension and stress and, and the stuff that, you know, is the nemesis of people who work nine to five. Mm-hmm. Kind of puts you in that state of flow. 
But, you know, to circle back, because there was, um, you had mentioned the, you know, the lack of people of color in uh, contemplative settings. Um, but another thing that you had mentioned, which I think is important, is that, you know, you've got um, people who are um, interested in a number of different religions and sometimes are influenced from a number of different places. Um, and they, you know, they kind of dabble, but they're really into contemplative spirituality. And I, I guess in that area, I'm a little bit old school. Um, and I think it's because I've traveled all over the world and I've just seen so many di different, you know, sights and sounds and everything else. And, and there's, you know, there's a, a few lines in the Tao Te Ching, which I think are powerful. It says, you know, too many sounds dull the ear, too many sights dull the eyes, too many tastes dull the palate that we almost need to have a kind of a discipline of, of sticking to one tradition. And um, there's this one uh, violinist, um, and he, he wrote a book uh, called um, – um, let, me, let me see – I cite it in my um, in my books. It's on the tip of my tongue, but anyway, uh, what what he talks about is that uh, when you have uh, when you have limits in a practice, it doesn't matter if it's a spiritual practice or a sport. When you have imposed limitations, it actually increases the intensity. Because you have rules in basketball, it increases the intensity of the play of basketball. Because you have rules of, of a certain kind of uh, contemplative practice, it increases the intensity of that practice. So what I'm saying is it's easy, it's easy to become too diffuse. It's easy to just dabble too much. I think at some point, and even the Dalai Lama says this, you know, at some point you should decide on a tradition. And... You know, and that's one of the key points of, of Sri Ramakrishna when, when he attended the, um, the World Council of Religions uh, in, in Chicago some, some decades ago. Um, he said, you know, you shouldn't try to, to dig many different wells because you're, you're going to dig shallow wells and you probably won't find water. What you should do is you should dig one well and dig it very deeply. And if you do that, eventually you will find water. And that's been my path. You know, that's my bias. And, and I own that. You know, um, I'm into interfaith dialogue. I'm into um, other faith traditions when it, by way of introduction. But I save myself for my wife. And my wife is contemplative Christianity. And so I save myself for her. And I think there's a beauty in that. There's power in that. Yeah, I think we talked about that a little bit last time we spoke. And unfortunately, it got, uh, it got uh, corrupted, the file. What I had said, though, was that um, I know a lot of people that, that feel the way you do, that um, uh, they use the saying, you know, dig one well deep rather than 10 shallow wells and you'll get to water. And another um, metaphor that I've heard recently, which I mean, metaphor is all we have when it comes to uh, the divine, but it referred to the divine not so much as like a subaqueous ground water that we dig to, but rather a rushing river with many tributaries and streams. And so, in our path, we can, you know, cross a small stream, drink water from a different stream, uh, bathe in another one, and then eventually reach the river. And that's something that I've seen as true with my experience is that I did have to walk away from, um, you know, the Big C Church for a number of years. And one of the things that helped me to reintegrate my faith was um, Eastern spirituality was, you know, uh, the teachings of the Buddha and also largely the the Hindu scriptures and the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita, seeing how the devotion of Hindu adherence to bhakti yoga um, really express the devotion 
that the Christian church does to Christ. And that also helped me to see the validity in that devotional path in Christianity. I actually just spoke with um, uh, Acharya Das. He's a, um, a Vedic philosopher from New Zealand, um, practitioner, of, uh, practitioner of Kirtan. And we were speaking about that, about the similarities between bhakti yoga and devotion to the Supreme Lord um, that dwells within the heart and then the devotional aspects of Christianity as it relates to Jesus. And um, I used to not be able to listen to praise and worship songs anymore because it just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And I was like, well, you know, that's not, that's not really theologically accurate and, and so forth. And, but ever since uh, I've encountered uh, Hindu spirituality and, and practice, it's put that in a new light and enabled me to embrace what I used to reject. And so, but yeah, I think there's, there's validity to, to, you know, digging deep in one path. I also think that using the techniques of other cultures helps me to dig deeper as well. Well, well, you know, um, you, you, some of these analogies, I, I like, I like the analogies and I think they help us, you know, uh, have more clarity about things that are sometimes challenging to talk about. But one analogy I have about Thomas Keating is he was kind of like the first Marine who hit the beach. I mean, of course, there were, you can't say he's the first Marine. I mean, there were so many others like, you know, Thomas Merton and, uh, you know, Bede Griffiths. And I mean, the, the list goes on. Um, and then, uh, of, of course, you know, John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila and, and, you know, so on and so forth. But, but Thomas Keating put Centering Prayer into a framework that was accessible to way, way more people. And, you know, the, the Contemplative Outreach newsletter has 300,000 subscribers worldwide. This is a large community. It's a large movement. It's not just on the side, the periphery. It's not on the margins anymore. And more and more people have gotten into this stuff because of Keating. So Keating is a real central centerpiece for me, and at some point I hope to, you know, maybe write, uh, if not an article, you know, perhaps a series of articles about, you know, Keating as as my anchor, as my teacher, and um, you, you know, he he really uh, has been uh, the the guide for me, and I think Sri Ramakrishna's advice would have been much much more difficult to follow if you're a contemplative Christian seventy five years ago. But now, because of Keating, because of the Centering Prayer movement, because of contemplative outreach, you can go really deep into contemplative prayer if you're a Christian. It's challenging. It's not quite as easy or as accessible as a path like Hinduism, because there the mysticism is readily available. It's very well developed. Um, in Christianity, we're still we're still developing it. So you you might have to go into your church and start a, a contemplative group that meets there once a week in the sanctuary. You know, you might have to start that Teze. Uh, service yourself, you know, because it's just not as accessible, not quite as, um, as evident as you find in Hinduism. But, um, but we need more contemplatives who stick within their Western, you know, Christian roots and, and develop it. And that's one of the things Carl Jung used to always talk about. He said, you know, Christianity is not a finished business. It's something that we can continue to develop. It's not. It's not like that. Some people sometimes decry Christianity. Oh, it's like this crusted thing. It's got you know too many layers of crust or whatever. But hey, you know you can develop it further in this generation.
I believe it's Richard Rohr who says that he thinks Christianity is still in its uh, infancy, I believe is how he says it. He says it's it's still in the first stages. Um, even the, you know, the first 2,000 years, he says, is the, you know, the beginning of, of what it's going to be and, and that he hopes it will uh, expand outward or from that um, contemplative space from here on out. But I, and I, I hear that from, from many contemplatives and I also equally hear, cause I, I kind of have my foot in the contemplative camp and then my other foot in the, um, philosophical camp. And another circle I frequent is more like postmodern philosophy and the death of God theology of Altizer, just because personally, I think it's very helpful in, performing iconoclasm and destroying the idols that we put up as God. And so, one of the things that I hear in those circles is that the nougat of of meaning in Christianity is is so deeply embedded that at sometimes we have to create new symbol systems and new metaphors to help us derive meaning from existence. Well, yeah, well, and you know, and sometimes people will come to me and they say, you know, I don't believe in God. And, and so instead of just throwing it out outright, I just say, okay, tell me about the God you don't believe in. And they'll go on about this anthropocentric God and about, you know, the witch hunts and the crusades and stuff. And, and I say, hey, I don't believe in that God either, you know. So so I, I really like, I mean, some of my colleagues, instead of uh, referring to God, they, they do a G, G-D, um, if, you know, whenever they write uh, the word God, because they just realize the word itself is, is it becomes so problematic mm-hmm. and it has so many layers of, of incre- encrusted assumptions and anthropocentrism and just so many issues that in some ways it's just better to just hey let's let's just decide on using a different term personally I'm, I'm still comfortable with the word God but I think you have to unpack it for people you can't just assume that we're talking about the same thing because when you say God when I say God we're probably talking about two different things so um so yeah, I, I think that that's uh, that's that's important. And, you know, in every tradition, and it's true of Christianity too, you have the whole spectrum of consciousness. So you you've got the conquistadors and and the witch hunts and the crusaders. You know, um, who who are you know on one end of the extreme in Christianity, and on the other end of the extreme, you have uh, you know Oscar Romero and you have. Uh, you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and you, you have, um, you know, Bede Griffiths and some of these others. And, and so, uh, you know, it, it is such a vast tradition claiming over one third of the world's population nominally call themselves Christian that you have to distinguish and clarify, you know, hey, these are my people, you know. And, and I, I often, you know, remind people that, that really where I'm at now in my life is I'm, I'm, I call myself a, um, a Catholic Quaker uh, because I, you know, I go to mass with, with my wife, but then I, I also like going to Quaker meeting. And I think, you know, you're talking about that river with the different tributaries. I think um, Quakerism is one of the most underrepresented fountains of mysticism in the West. It's produced some of the most amazing mystics, uh, Rufus Jones, Thomas R. Kelly, um, you know, uh, I mean, just just some George Fox, um, you know, just just so many amazing, uh, amazing luminaries. Uh, so it's very unassuming, though, because it's it's really just about waiting and uh, being present. Um, I've attended a couple uh, Quaker meetings, and it's always it's very 
not what it appears to be on the outside. You know, you see like a traditional looking church and, and then you go inside and everyone's basically performing, I don't know what you would call it, centering prayer or uh, Vipassana or, or however you would term it. Well, well, Caroline, you know, to, to keep, keep kind of the, the um, trajectory with the Quakers, uh, Caroline Stephen, who's one of my favorite writers about Quakerism, she talked about how she attended churches all her life in England. Um, but the preaching of, of the, the priests didn't really sink in that often. But she says when she was in Quaker meeting and she was sitting in the silence, when an elder would stand up out of that silence and there was the context of, you know, maybe 25, 30 minutes of silence, those words, she said, just like they just cut straight to her heart. She said it was so powerful. Mm-hmm. And, and context is everything. You know, when you have that context of what, what's called waiting worship, um, it's very powerful. And, and there's two, you know, there's two branches of Quakerism that celebrate the hour-long silent uh, worship. One is called Conservative Friends, and then the other one is called FGC, or, or Friends General Conference. And they both uh, honor the silence, and, um, and it is powerful. So I think people who are interested in, in uh, contemplative Christianity, they, they can definitely explore, explore that tributary of Quakerism. I've noticed also that with contemplative circles and general uh, contemplative spirituality, that there seems to be kind of like a secret handshake or signal phrases or code words that people tend to use, like um, pure prayer or um, non-dual. Non-dual, yeah, and they seem to almost people don't even know what they're talking about. No, and yeah, non-dual. I mean, it's like only the most profound state of mind possible. That you know, they even say in, in Hinduism, it takes like twenty years of meditation. Oh yeah, non-dual. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I, I, uh, I saw a meme that was uh, the two OC Chopper guys fighting, and they were like, "No, I'm non-dual. No, you, no, I'm non-dual. You're being dualistic. No, you're being dualistic." And uh, it's it's just hilarious. But a- anyway, the the question that I have is um, for people that are, I guess, the only way to say it is uninitiated into that type of culture. Is there a way that we can begin to speak that's not so othering and not so um, insular, at least in the language? Because it reminds me a lot. I grew up in the evangelical church, and sometimes it can remind me of what they call Christianese. You know, like, like, how's your heart or being prayed up and like just different signal phrases like that, that make no sense to anyone else outside the circle. But is there a way for us to expand the language so that it's accessible to people that aren't necessarily initiated into that culture? Because I don't think contemplative Christianity really, I don't think it has to be or should be cultural. You know, it should be um, something that's able to cross-cultural boundaries. And I know everything is culturally situated, but I think there's something to be said for how we can present these ideas and these ways of being in a way that's not a hindrance to certain people. Well, and, and maybe this is, is your work, Joy, given that you're 28. Um, you know, <laughs> you know, maybe a uh, contemplative Christianity for dummies, you know, I mean, and you've got all those contacts, so you could, uh, you could have a good editorial staff, uh, help you with that work. Yeah. But, um, but, but, you know, one of the things I've tried to do in Recover Christianity's Mystic Roots, which is, you know, the organization that I, that I work in and it's, um, you know, it's rcmr5.com. But, um, but it, what I've tried to do is, is just focus on five roots. 
And so for me, the, this is just a nutshell of, of Christianity, uh, contemplative Christianity. The first root for me is centering prayer. Um, I also, you know, have a lot of respect for um, what's called Christian meditation, uh, the John Main School. Um, but, but you know, those are the two primary um, forms of meditation uh, that are deeply within Christian tradition. And so the, so the first root is centering prayer. Second root is new monasticism. And I, I am clear about new monasticism because I, I don't think monasticism is confined to the monastery or to the cloister or to the abbey. I think we can take those practices that are, um, you know, termed monastic and we can incorporate them into my own life. And that's what I do. I mean, one of the things I do when I'm, when I'm driving on my commute is I have, uh, I have a prayer rope and I, I say the Jesus prayer, you know, and it's, it's so much more centering for me than if I was, you know, distracting myself with talk radio or whatever. So, you know, there's all kinds of ways we can incorporate a, kind of a monastic life, um, even if we're not in the monastery. So new monasticism is the second. Then the third one is uh, Christian mysticism. And this is just, you know, identifying those Christian mystics that really speak to us um, in the past and also contemporary Christian mystics and and regenerating ourselves with their with their words um, so that's number three number four is the Jesus paradox and that's to me is the non-dual essence of Christian tradition you know that, that Jesus is at once God and human you cannot separate them so if you're a believer and you say, uh, you know, I, I, I believe uh, that, that Jesus is a human being, well, to be authentic to the tradition, you have to say, um, you know, God in human form. Um, you know, in the same, you can't just say Jesus is God, you know, that God in human form. So, so there's always that paradox uh, going on. And that's important for us because it, it leaves space open in our mind. It, it, it makes it um, more difficult for us to become rigid or absolute in our thinking. Um, and there's, there's what we call creative tension that then becomes possible. And, and gridlock, not only political gridlock, but gridlock in our families and extended families, we can start to get past it creatively because we're no longer thinking either or all the time. Mm-hmm. So, um, so anyway, so the, the Jesus paradox, that's number four. And then number five is nonviolence. I think all of the traditions within Christian tradition that, that have been uh, the authentic voices of the early church have touted uh, nonviolence, including Tertullian from the second century. Christians would, uh, allow, would be conscripted into any army. They refused um, you know, because of religious conscience, and many of them died as a result. And of course, the Quakers and other peace churches, like the uh, the the, um, the Brethren, the Mennonite, have carried on the peace testimony. But but to me, that's really the essence of Christian mysticism. And so, if you keep those four touchstones in mind, you're not going to get lost. You know, you're you're going to stay within the woods that we call Christian contemplative tradition, that we call Christian mysticism. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of giving it these broad strokes. That way, it leaves room for dynamism and uh, indifference within that. And I like that. There's a couple things in there I want to circle back to, but one of the things you said was about the uh, the Jesus paradox. And I was uh, a few months ago, actually probably a year ago now, I was out at a Center for Action and Contemplation for the uh, Universal Christ Conference. Since then, and th- there's like, you know, Facebook groups popping up everywhere and you know, people are working through the ideas in the book and everything. And one thing that I've noticed with people who are kind of new to this idea um, is that they kind of want to shed this idea of, um, not so much shed, but more bifurcate the 
the idea of Jesus and Christ. So, they, they might say something like, well, Jesus was the man and Christ was the eternal principle that he was embodying or the, um, you know, the, the word of God from the beginning of all creation and so forth. Um, so, Jesus was a manifestation of uh, the Christ, but wasn't the Christ proper. And initially, that was, you know, alluring, I think, for me, um, because it is easier to make sense of. But again, with, with um, the Hindu tradition, that's something that's kind of helped me because in their devotion to, to Krishna, you know, he has like a human avatar, he has a human form, uh, multiple forms that, you know, the, that the god Vishnu takes, but he's experienced personally. And so, sometimes I'll see contemplatives push back on more contemporary Christian people and, you know, they'll say like, oh, well, I, you know, I experienced Jesus, you know, I have this experience of Jesus. And they'll say, well, that wasn't Jesus, that was the Christ. And, you know, they go back and forth like this for a while. And I just, I think that it's, it can be helpful, but it can also be harmful in a way because Jesus simply, I think, is the personal touchstone that people use just like uh, Hindu devotees might say Krishna or uh, Ramakrishna for their experience of the transcendent, and it's this personal connection that they they use. And so, even though people, when they say they experience Jesus, they might really actually be talking about the same thing as you when you say you experience the risen Christ. They're just using more personal language. So, do you think that there's there's harm in kind of bifurcating this nature of Jesus and Christ, or do you think it's helpful? We we are so heavily scripted in um, in dualistic thought uh, from from the time we were children. So it's very very difficult to unlearn it. Um, ever since we're we're children, we're constantly thinking in terms of win lose, us and them, black and white, up and down. Uh, divine and human, um, you know, eternal and temporal, um, you know, but, but the beauty of Jesus and his transformative power is he breaks all that down. And one of my, my all-time favorite sayings of the Desert Fathers is from Athanasius. Somebody sa- said to Athanasius, said, how on earth can, um, you know, can divinity and humanity uh, you, you know, come together in, in the person of Jesus. And Athanasius's response is just amazing. He said, um, it, it's just as sight is equal to the eyes. And, and so, you know, this idea that, that you know, the eyes it has this, this broad, like open, spacious, you know, vision, which, which is, you know, divine. Um, but they're anchored in these eyeballs which are made of flesh and cells and molecules, and the, the the two depend on each other, and and that's why you know Cyril to break it down even further, he would say this that Jesus's flesh was God's flesh, and he and he would also say that God suckled, like and he's not he's not playing around with words, he's actually that's that's actual the meaning God suckled, you know God um, God suckled at the breast of Mary. Um, God's breath, uh, you know, smelled after eating garlic, you know, um, God uh, sweated, you know, I mean, God was in every way, one of us, every way human. Um, and that, that is profound. It's beautiful. It's powerful because it, it has the, the ability to just 
break down, you know, the, I mean, dualistic thought and binary thinking is, is great for building bridges, for, for building hospitals, you know, for all kinds of things. But when it comes to the world of mysticism, uh, we need to get into the non-dual. And there's, there's really, in, in my mind, there's two aspects of consciousness. There's absolute and relative. Now, we all know about relative consciousness because we're steeped in it every day. And it's, it's rooted in language. And every, every time you utter anything, any word, it's inherently dualistic. Because as soon as you say one thing, you can say the opposite, and then you have a dualism. But, but mysticism and absolute consciousness is totally different. It's categorically different. And it's rooted in silence, not language. And the absolute is where we find God in the deepest sense. And it's possible in this life. And then the relative is, you know, is steeped in language and culture and tradition and clothing and, you know, on and on and on and on, right? But, um, but the absolute is, uh, you know, is something that we can experience, especially on prolonged retreats that emphasize silence and that emphasize um, a, a deep form of meditation like centering prayer. Yeah, and Thomas Keating himself, I think, even is quoted as saying that uh, silence is God's first language and all else is a poor translation. Yes, yes, beautifully yeah, said, yeah. yes. And that's perfect. That's, that's what it is, because as soon as you say anything, as soon as you utter anything, uh, you're all, all of a sudden – and see, see, the challenge for us, this is the big challenge, is that we are just totally wrapped up in the senses – the senses are the root of our experience. So what, so what we see and what we smell and what we taste and what we hear, that is the root of our reality. But there is a categorically different um, level of reality that is not rooted in the senses. Now, people are baffled when they hear that. Like, how, how can there be anything that's not rooted in the senses? Well, in the Orthodox Church, they call it the spiritual faculties. So it's, it's, something, it's a mode of perception that is not sense-based. And, and because it's not sense-based, it's not dualistic. Because, like, for example, your you know, t- uh, sense of taste. I mean, you have pleasure when you're eating the, the, um, the cotton candy. When the cotton candy is finished, you, you have displeasure. You know, when, when your wife is, is giving you a Swedish massage, you're like, you know, oh, this is great. You know, and then when she's like, oh, I got to take this call, and, and the, the massage stops. You're like, what the hell, you know? And, and so there's this constant, like, um, you know, satisfaction and pleasure and then the absence of it. But what happens when, you, when you're no longer rooted in the senses and you go to that deeper level of, of contemplative life, um, then what, what you have is, is what in Buddhist tradition they refer to as um, a, abiding joy, mm-hmm. abiding peace. And, and what, what these, these um, levels of emotion are, are, are on a spiritual level now, and they are not contingent upon um, whether, you know, you're, you're eating that tiramisu or whether it's, it's all done or, or, you know, whatever the, the sensual pleasure is. Because, um, you know, this is, this is something that that's, it, there's no longer the roller coaster of emotion of, of like we feel high when, when we're getting what we want. We feel low when, we, when it's taken away from us. Um, but we, there is this plane that's possible that the Orthodox uh, Church sometimes talk about in, in mystics and Orthodox tradition, which is, um, you know, abiding joy and abiding peace. So it's peace that's not really um, – tied to to how things are going on the outside. I mean, on the outside, there could be really devastating circumstances and big challenges, yet there's still joy 
um, that's that's inexplicable. And and you know, Paul is an example of that because he's in prison. He has no reason to be happy, yet he is joyful and he's singing. And it makes no sense. It's not rational. It's irrational. But that's the beauty of this. Is you know, when we go deeply into this, is we find um, this kind of undercurrent uh, of. Uh, you know, this groundswell that this deep within us um, that is not affected by all the chatter and, and all the lights and bells and whistles and, and stuff that that confuses and distracts us in, in, in the sense of the world. And that's why, you know, a lot of they talk about, you know, deprivation of the senses, but in the best sense, it's liberating because because if, if, if you can, um, you know, if you can practice abstinence from sex, well, then, you know, you are no longer are um, are in that you know mode of, of compulsion where where you just have to act on instinct. If you can practice fasting from food, you're no longer um, dictated by that by those urges, uh, and and you start to come into freedom. And if you can practice you know silence instead of the incessant noise then that's liberating. I mean, if you can practice um, stillness instead of, you know, incessant activity, which is based in some kind of compulsion, then, you know, there's a freedom in that. I mean, we can't take it to, to the extreme like ascetics in the past where they just deprived themselves of all kinds of things and thought that they were, you know, achieving holiness. That, that's, that's all mixed up. But, we, but in order to, to find freedom, we have to get away from the binaries. We have to get away from the, the sadness and joy, the, the, the fear and the and find um, something that's deeper than all that. Um, it, it's, you know, even to try to talk about it, I, I feel sometimes like I'm, I'm a fool or that I'm babbling, but, um, but you know, it, it's hard, it's hard to, to get to this, you know, absolute uh, state. But, but it's so beautiful and so powerful that I, I always, you know, do what I can to encourage it. Yeah, it, I mean it's not it's not crazy. I definitely know what you're talking about, and it sounds like you were quoting the Upanishads and in, in what you were saying, and withdrawing from the senses and being the same in uh, in cool and in heat. And uh, funny story, actually, I I work with an an elderly man who's a former uh, CIA operative and Navy man. He operated a submarine and wealth of knowledge, this guy, and very kind and gentle. And I walked into work uh, a couple months ago, and I told him, I was like, man, it's hot outside. I said, you know, I can I can do cold fine. Like, I'm all right in cold weather, but I cannot do heat. And he looks at me and goes, cold, hot, it's all the same to me. And I just like, I had just read um, the Alan Watts book uh, about Zen and something like that was in there. And he just schooled me in in four seconds. And I was just like, wow. Um, And, you know, you talk about the Upanishads, um, you know, one one person in Christian tradition, which which just, you know, people, I I just don't think even realize that he exists, but it's, it's Dionysus. He's also referred to as Dennis. But um, but, you know, he's got um, he's got uh, these, these two profound works, which are his, his root works, um, one is called um, something about the, the divine names of God, something like that. But it reads like the Upanishads. But he's, he's clearly Dionysus. It's clearly within Christian tradition. Um, but, but, yeah, it's um, – I, I don't know. It, it's, um, it, it's, it's, such a, it's such a beautiful um, place that – to, that we can get to in, in contemplative 
prayer, especially on long retreats, but it does take some discipline to get there because the usual mind um, is, is constantly chattering. And, um, you know, it's, it's got a new incoming thought every three to four seconds. So to, to quiet the mind down is a very challenging thing. I, one of the best metaphors I, I heard about this was Jack Cornfield, you know, Buddhist. Um, but he, uh, he talked about how, you know, it's like training a puppy. And what you're trying to do is train the puppy to sit in the center of a circle. If you've ever tried to get a puppy to sit anywhere for any length of time, you, you see how frustrating it is. Every single time you, you put that puppy in the center of that circle, he's going to wander. And then you just gently bring him back. And then he wanders. And then you gently bring him back. It's monotonous. It's tedious work. It's very hard to keep up with that. But that's, that's the training of the mind. It's very mm. challenging work. But what will happen if you do it for enough weeks is eventually – that puppy will sit in the middle of the circle for like for like 30 seconds and that's a triumph mm-hmm. you know it's amazing because you finally have been able to still that that mind you've finally been able to still the puppy if people had the same control over the legs that they they have over their mind they wouldn't be able to walk i mean we people have such little control over their minds and that's you know that's what we're really trying to do in the beginning stages of of christian meditation and centering prayer is you're trying to train the mind I love that puppy metaphor. That's so great because it it's it's not just what you're doing, it's the posture with which you're doing it because I think a lot of people when they're trying initially to to start meditating or to start a contemplative practice, their puppy starts wandering and um, they're not thinking of it as a puppy, as like an object of affection and devotion, um, but they more maybe instinctively want to beat the puppy for walking out of the circle. And, and that's that ascetic mindset of, you know, constricting and pushing away and rejecting. And, and it has to be open-handed. It has to be in love and, and seeing your, you know, your monkey mind and, seeing it as valuable in what it is and your rational mind is serving a purpose and just kind of gently bringing it back and not chastising it because I think that more has the effect of of leading you further away when you tend to beat yourself up over uh, not being able to, to quiet your mind. Well, so, yeah, and, and in the Centering Prayer tradition, you know, the, the, there's a sacred word, and the sacred word is to bring you back to your intention to, to be in contemplation with God. So it's really the sacred word is like the hand that brings the puppy, you know, back to the circle. Now, and there is that temptation to whack the puppy. But, but what Keating says is always resist that temptation. And so, you know, in, in Centering Prayer, one of the things that Keating would say over and over again is ever so gently, you know, bring your mind back. Another, I think, important kind of distinction to um, that, you know, as far as, you know, people who are interested in centering prayer practice is you're going to have a few errant thoughts that come in every once in a while. Like, for example, I'm sitting uh, just before lunch and I think to myself, um, okay, you know, I was going to have an avocado sandwich. You know, is the avocado ripe that's in the fridge? Okay. And then that's the end of the thought, right? And then you're kind of back into centering prayer. That's fine. That's fine. Um, but the answer, the answer is no, avocado is never ripe. But see, but see, if you go off, if you go off on a tangent and you start thinking to yourself, you know, those sprouts that I saw, I was going to put some sprouts on the sandwich The sprouts are starting to brown just a little bit. And you know, my favorite bread isn't there anymore. I, I had that multi-grain bread and, and I think the 10 year old, you know, nabbed it. Now all, all I got is Thomas Ingus muffins, you know? And, and so that the sandwich just isn't going to be the same, you know, and, and, and you start going on and on about all this different stuff, right? That is when, okay, you, you're derailed at that point. 
And that's when the technology of the sacred word, that's what the purpose of it is for. Because at that point you say, okay, you're gently bringing the puppy back. You say, okay, you know, I've wandered. You acknowledge you've wandered. And you use your sacred word. My sacred word is rest. And I, I get it from the um, I get it from the New Testament. It says, you know, come to me, uh, you who are uh, heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. So, so that's my sacred word. So, so when I start having you know a train of thought like that, then I just say I just say to myself very quietly, just say rest, and I gently bring myself back, and then I'm back in that space again. And that's the beauty of of a practice like centering prayers. There's a technology for working with your mind. Um, and it's not just this kind of, you know, willy-nilly kind of thing. So do you still pray discursively? Do you still do more traditional, like, petitionary-style prayer? Well, um, so so when you go kind of deeper in, into Centering Prayer tradition, uh, you know, they, they talk about three different types of prayers. There's um, worders, and, and worders are the majority of centering prayer. That's probably 80% of people who do centering prayer are worders. That means they use the sacred word to bring themselves back to that contemplative dimension. Um, there's a second category that are breathers. Breathers are probably about 10% of people in centering prayer tradition where they, they just find it the most helpful to come back to the breath. Uh, so when they're distracted and they're, they've gone on a, some you know tangent, they come back to the breath. Um, there's a third category, which is called gazers. And, um, and these are people who their, their meditation has evolved so that uh, what they do is they kind of have an open-ended gaze um, on the floor in front of them. And I, I happen to be, in, in the past, oh, I'd say eight or nine years, I've, I've moved towards being a gazer. So, um, so that, that's, that's my form of meditation. The reason I like it is because I find that I can be more uh, attentive, um, you know, when the room is well lit, you know, and, and I have my eyes open, uh, you know, th- there's less likelihood to fall asleep. Um, I just find it works better for me. And, uh, and there are times when, I, when I'm distracted, you know, and I go off on a train of thought and then I use the sacred word to come back. But, um, but I, I just have that uh, kind of open-ended gaze uh, out in front of me. Um, some, some people in meditative traditions have said, you know, you want to gaze about uh, plow lengths. You know, uh, I kind of image of like a hand plow because you know it shows that the roots of this tradition you know it's not some elites you know it's it's working people who just you know after doing a certain kind of a task like plowing you know day in day out in their fields for years they just got into a really deeply contemplative space and um, and then they would you know they would balance their day and and all of their toil with that with that quiet with that silence with that stillness so do you pray um discursively anymore at all like uh, do you do you say prayers over food or in times of trouble and duress do you do you pray well when I when I go to you know a Catholic church with my wife and, and with my with my son you know we 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 uh uh, pray there uh, discursively, of course, and then um, grace. Uh, and then what I do with my uh, Jesus prayer is that the you know, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Um, and, you know, you can also change it to Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on our country or Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us or Lord Jesus Christ, uh, Son of God, have mercy on Jory, you know, and, and so you can change it up. Um, so that's another thing I do in my commutes uh, to work when I'm doing the Jesus prayers. I change it up depending on who needs prayer, and it just keeps that person in my heart and mind. Mm-hmm. 
Kind of like a loving kindness meditation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm not sure if you've read uh, this book called The Buddha Pill. I think it's The Buddha Pill. Um, But it's talking about like the different studies of mindfulness and everything. And it kind of critiques the modern mindfulness racket as this way to kind of enslave people to a capitalistic system. Because it talks about like um, the... Google Corporation, like having meditation rooms and um, facilities on their campus where um, you can just go and uh, meditate or, or practice mindfulness. And um, and they almost use it as a way to make their employees' satisfaction levels go up, but also to make their efficiency and um, productivity go up. And not that I think those are bad things, but I don't think that that's the uh, the right incentive, I guess, for contemplative practice. And I think it can be, I guess, misused by corporations to try and, you know, squeeze a little more juice out of their out of their uh, employees, so to speak. So, how do you differentiate between like pop mindfulness and actually being present as you are in contemplative prayer? Well, motivation in, in, you know, spirituality is everything. And so, uh, you know, I, I really believe in the stuff that John Kabat-Zinn and Andrew Weil have done. Uh, you know, they've, they've tried to bring meditation and mindfulness into hospitals, um, which helps people to be, become, uh, you know, it helps lower their anxiety. It helps uh, them heal faster, has all those kinds of uh, side effects, which are, which are very important important and powerful. And then, you know, Google and, and these other companies that have a meditation room, their, um, you, you know, their uh, motivation is efficiency. And that's, that's just fine, too. You know, Rich Lewis, my colleague, often talks about relaxed efficiency, um, how, you know, it does make you more efficient. But, but Thomas Keating would say that these are all byproducts. That ultimately, what you want to do, your motive, what your motivation should be in centering prayer, is what he calls heavy dates with God. And you know that there's, and I like his I like his metaphor of the heavy date because, you know, a heavy date is uh, when you know conversation has come to a standstill. Uh, there's no longer anything more left to say. In, in other words, discursive prayer, you know, it, it's like not really necessary at that point. And and then you start to experience this intimacy with with your, you know, with your lover, your spouse, and you go to a place that is that is not verbal. You know, and it's a heavy day. You know, and it's the same thing with with centering prayer sessions uh, every day. They're heavy dates with God, and um, and eventually they do become you know profound. They become intimate. They um, they become blissful, um, if, especially if you have the discipline to stay with it for a number of years. And uh, and I like that metaphor the best. I think uh, in, instead of efficiency, instead of you know uh, more effective healing, I mean those things have their place. But Keating would say they're, they're somewhat like byproducts to the real point, which is uh, at an existential level to know uh, on a deep level beyond words who we are and whose we are. And that, that not, not just the verbiage that, oh, you're my beloved, you know, like in the prodigal son, but experiencing that embrace of the father experiencing it on a profound level um, in our in our tissue you know in, in our and on a cellular level um, 
<clears throat> it's, you know, and, and I think it's so important to emphasize that meditation is not just about the mind. It's about the nervous system. And when we really go deeply into this stuff, our nervous system begins to heal. And uh, we, we will have better health. We will be more efficient at work. But that's not the point. The point is that now we are in communion uh, with the divine. Exactly. So we're coming to the end of our time. I want to be respectful of your time. Um, what method of prayer or meditation will you be leading us through today? Let's try uh, the the, uh, the Jesus prayer. Let's let's go with that. Um, and I'm I'm going to go with a really short form of the Jesus prayer um, because I think it's it's just uh, it's easier because you can just remember it anywhere. Um, but and and let's also go with another innovation. This is an innovation of um, of an Orthodox bishop. Uh, his name is Callistos Ware. Um, but but he says he thinks a proper innovation for the 21st century is instead of saying me as the last word, we say us. And I, I like the, I like the, the the power of that too, especially in our time because us is you know also the U.S. Right? Um, you can think of it that way. So. Um, so, you know, you can just, you can close your eyes and, uh, and just be conscious of your breathing. If your breathing is, uh, is short, just uh, take in a couple of deep breaths and just. And then uh, we can just say, you know, in in tra- traditional, um, you know, uh, prayer row, each knot you say the Jesus prayer once. So let's just do uh, let's just do ten knots. So Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us. Jesus Christ, Son of God. Have mercy on us. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us. Amen. Amos, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me again. Where can people go to keep up with what you're doing? Well, um, there's there's the two books, and they're very uh, you know easy to find online, um, Amazon and. Uh, christianbooks.com and uh, a few other places, um, you know, Goodreads. Um, but the first book is uh, Healing the Divide, 
Recovering Christianity's Mystic Roots. And it's, um, it was published by Whip and Stock Publishers. That's an Oregon-based publisher. And um, the afterword of this book is uh, by Richard Rohr. And uh, this book is one of the uh, core curriculum of Richard Rohr's uh, Living School. And then my, my second book is uh, Be Still and Listen, Experience the Presence of God in Your Life. And the foreword is bit written by Felina Hirwitz, who um, is well-known in contemplative Christianity. She has the um, Gravity Center in, uh, in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, and this one uh, is also readily available online. And this one was published by Paraclete Press. Um, if you want a kind of a, just a, a starter that's, that's, uh, that's just more accessible, I would uh, start with Be Still and Listen, that book. Because it's only, uh, let's see, what does it say? It's 120 pages and uh, very easy to read. But thanks, Jory. Thanks for the time. All right. Thank you, Amos. Have a good night.